Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 71, Revelation, Who Can Stand? And in this episode, we're going to watch as the Lamb opens the sixth of the seven seals of the scroll and then observe what appears to be a description of the absolute end of the world and the end of all things. And so we're going to dive into some of the language that is used here in Revelation 6 and draw upon quite a few passages from the Old Testament that describe both the judgment and the salvation of the world, which is in line again with what we believe is the purpose of the scroll once it's eventually opened. And so I'm excited to get into this and to remind us again of the kinds of things that appear all through Scripture whenever the Lord's presence um, makes His way to the earth and how it is described for us in language particularly here as apocalyptic language. And so let's um, jump right into it. I'm excited to, to get into this one with you. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 6, 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now as we wrap up chapter 6 in Revelation, I do want to remind you, as we've been doing all through the episodes, that this is apocalyptic language. And apocalyptic is a particular genre and a particular style of writing which we aren't really to take literally. In fact, we're really to wrestle with what is being communicated through these images. And um, it might help to point out that it's my belief that of all the passages in the Bible, um, Revelation definitely being one of the, the more difficult ones to understand, but very few people seem to um, know all that much about the prophets. And when you don't, you don't realize that the way the language is used in Revelation actually comes a lot of times from the prophets, um, even some of the Psalms that don't seem to be as familiar to us. And so I'm going to reference a few of those as we go, just to help you see that nothing that John is describing here is being described for the first time in the Bible. Um, Revelation is simply drawing on passages that have been used all through Scripture, and it is doing so in order to point out to us that whenever the Lord's presence is coming, in some sense, in response to the cries of, of an oppressed people or in order to, to establish justice and restore holiness to the earth, he's always described and the earth is always seemed to be describing uh, as some something that is quaking, um, that things are turning dark that are normally meant to be light or that blood is, you know, the moon is turning to blood. And in the book of Joel and the book of Isaiah and the book of Ezekiel and some of the Psalms describe this over and over and over again. But I also want to remind you that even when you read something like this, 
um, in in Revelation 12, I'm sorry, ver, chapter 6, verse 13, where it talks about the stars of the sky falling to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. This is simply a description of like utter calamity. Um, but you and I both know, or if you know anything about science, you know that it, in terms of the size of stars with reference to the size of the earth, stars are actually much bigger than the entire earth. And so the idea that stars would fall from heaven and land on the earth is sort of like a non-reality. Uh, that's not even something that could happen. And so again, why is this being described this way? Well, we, we need to remember if, if the earth quakes at the coming of the Lord in his holiness in order to establish justice, we need to think in terms of earthquakes and, and fire and thunder and rumblings and things that disrupt our, our normal existence. And we know that's the case because in Revelation 4, when we are given an image and a vision of the Lord on his throne... You remember I pointed out in episode 65, the one seated on the throne, that from the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You know, the very presence of the Lord indicates these types of things. And so we've looked at a few of these before, but let me just remind you, um, in Exodus chapter 19, when the Lord descends onto Mount Sinai, when meeting with Moses there to give the people the Ten Commandments and to establish what justice will look like between God and his people as the nation of Israel is being established, it says that the entire mountain was smoking and the whole mountain shook. Right, so this is an imagery used to describe what happens when the Lord comes to the earth in Psalm 97, it says that the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. This is powerful poetic language to describe like, like incredible highs and incredible lows of what happens when the Lord comes to the earth. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. And as we looked at in, in episode 65, I, I do want to draw your attention back to Psalm 18, which is an excellent example of a real time in, in the Old Testament narrative where David is, is pleading for the Lord to help him from Saul, who is trying to kill him. And when David utters his cry, it says that he cried out to the Lord from the temple and his prayer was heard by the Lord. And so here's the Lord responding to the prayer of David, who when you read the narrative in 1 Samuel, um, what you find out, or, or in 2 Samuel rather, what you find out is that the Lord simply allows David to continually escape with his life so as not to be killed by Saul. And David interprets that as the Lord doing this. Here's how he writes about it in Psalm 18. Then the earth reeled and rocked. This is David's description of the Lord coming to rescue him because injustice is taking place um, uh, 
uh, um, toward David here. The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick dark clouds with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. Now you can hear the repeated imagery there, the darkness and the the smoke and the foundations of the mountains trembling and quaking. It's just like in Revelation 6, talking about the mountains fleeing and there being no place for the islands. Everything is displaced. Things that are established, things that are structured are no more to be found. In fact, it once again is a reminder of why I began the Revelation series with a sermon I preached on shaking the heavens from episode 42. Let me remind you what Hebrews 12 tells us about the shaking of the earth. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yes, once, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so what is taking place in the final sixth seal is an absolute unraveling of everything that the kings of the earth and the generals and the great ones and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free had come to count on in this world. And yet all the destruction that they had been a part of, led by the beast, led by the dragon, will one day come to a crashing halt. And they call out, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, noticing that these people are afraid of the face of him who is seated on the throne is a really, really interesting idea because we spent a significant number of weeks looking at the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the lamb who is seated there with him. And the face that we see, the face of God who is revealed in Christ is one of self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying love for one's enemies. It is a power under kingdom, a loving and a serving kingdom to set the prisoners free, to shine light into the darkness, and to pull prisoners out of the prison. That is a very, very hopeful message. And when the presence of the Lord comes to bear on the world and that is his mindset, people don't run away and hide. They come out of hiding in fact, that's exactly what Jesus invites people to do all through the Gospels. He knows that they're walking in darkness. He comes to be the light and he invites people out of their hiding, out of their darkness, out of the caves and the rocks and the mountains to come to him so that he can free them. That's not the picture here. 
And yet I want to point out to you that the reason that's not the picture here isn't because Jesus and the one seated on the throne are no longer kind and compassionate toward humanity. I want to remind you that there will come a day when the presence of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb will fully come to bear on the earth, and those who do not want to be part of that will not see the Lord and Jesus as anything but disastrous. Let me remind you what Psalm 18 goes on to say. The psalm I just quoted describing the Lord's powerful rousing of his anger and justice in order to come to David's aid. Here's what David reminds us and reminds the Lord. He says, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. That's Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26, and I could not emphasize the importance of that passage for you enough. When you are crooked in your ways and you seek to make your empire the divine or the deity or you seek to make your way of life what is most important to you, the way you will see God and his presence will not be the way his presence actually is, but he, the Lord, will make himself seem tortuous to those whose ways are crooked. They're not able to see the Lord for who he actually is, and so they are afraid of him when he comes. This is a sad reality, but it's a reality that describes a lot of people. A lot of people today don't want to be anywhere near the Lord because they're convinced that he is exactly as Satan described him to be to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, that he's a selfish jerk who is only bent on his own pleasures and does not want humanity to experience or enjoy any of them. And so the Lord's destruction, if you will, is always viewed as he's trying to destroy me, not he's trying to destroy the things that are destroying me. Those are two very different pictures, but the image we get here from the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free is that the presence of the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the lamb is only out to disrupt their lives. Now, granted, if you are a king of the earth and you are a great one and you are a general and you are rich and you are powerful, you very well may have arrived at those places because of your mistreatment of others. You very well may view yourself as the king on the throne, and as such, you are threatened by the presence of another king. But make no mistake, you're not threatened by him because he's out to destroy you. You're threatened by him because his presence and his kingdom will, will make yours completely um, irrelevant. And those who do not want to lose what they have hold, held onto so tightly and those who do not want to lose what they believe is all that they have to gain will see him as a threat to them. Now, one of the key passages that shows up um, in the Old Testament that sort of primes the pump for the discussion that we're seeing here in Revelation 6 comes from Joel chapter 2. It's a passage that is quoted in Acts chapter 2. 
on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches to help everyone understand what has just happened with the um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's also used by Paul in Romans chapter 10. But here's the passage from Joel 2. It says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, that's exactly what Revelation 6 is describing. And so this is the day, um, the great and awesome day of the Lord. But the next verse says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, both Acts chapter 2 and Paul in Romans chapter 10 use this second half, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved as this glorious moment of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation, Paul will tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And so the, the image here is that everyone on the great and awesome day of the Lord is given the opportunity to call out for the Lord for salvation. Of course, there's something that these individuals call out for, and it's not for salvation. They're calling out to hide them from the face of the one who has come because they're afraid of him. And I know historically that some, some believers will hold to the fact that the reason they're afraid is because he is no, the Lord is no longer coming with mercy. He's no longer coming with compassion. That day is over. He is coming solely with wrath. But I want you to understand that wrath is seen as such when those who are on the negative receiving end of the presence of the Lord don't want his presence there. In fact, according to Romans 1, the wrath of the Lord is nothing more than the Lord removing his presence from people. It's what they request, and it is in fact the very judgment that he allows on them. And we might take some more time as we work our way through the book for me to explain that a little bit more. But I wanted to share a few other passages with you before we run out of time. And Isaiah 34 is another one. Now all the host of heaven shall rot away, says the Lord, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now, this is an exact description that John is giving us in Revelation 6. Or 20 chapters later, Isaiah 54 says this, The mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. In Micah chapter 1 says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. But then there are two other passages that I want to draw your attention to, and that is one is found in the book of Nahum, and it simply says this in chapter 1. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Did you hear the statement written by Nahum who says, Who can stand before his indignation? Now, this is a question that Nahum poses while he's describing the coming presence of the Lord to the earth. But this is a question that is actually found on the lips of the kings and the generals and the great ones and the rich and the powerful who say, who can stand? 
They may also be picking this up from Malachi chapter 3, a passage that John the Baptist references when he comes to prepare the way for Jesus. It says in Malachi 3, 1 to 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now here's our question again. Who can stand when he appears? Isaiah, I'm sorry, Malachi then goes, continues to say that he will sit as a refiner and purifier and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Why? So that they will be able to stand. So that they will be pure. In fact, this is how Peter in 1 Peter actually describes the work of the Lord to prepare his people. He will purify them like gold refined in a fire. He will purify them with the presence of the Lord. Now, the New Testament even speaks about the Lord's presence being like a consuming fire and the fact that the Lord will purify his people through fire to burn away the things about them that aren't what they ought to be. But you and I know instinctively as we read those passages that that does not mean that you and I will be burned up by the presence of the Lord. Those who are moldable and shapeable by him will receive his presence as refining fire and will be overjoyed that he is doing that powerful work in us. And the reason why I think this is important to understand and the reason why it, it troubles me sometimes that people get hung up over what is this going to be, these great earthquakes and the sun is turning to blood and you get people wanting to watch you know, blood moons in the, in, the, in the heavens and then anticipate that this means it's the end of all things is that what happens when we get sidetracked by those questions is that we miss something that is plain and obvious right in the passage itself. And it's why I've chosen to title this episode, Who Can Stand? Because it's a question that the terrified sinners at the end of this chapter ask in desperation. It's a rhetorical question to them. They're assuming that no one can survive the day of this coming cosmic calamity. They're just, they're afraid, they're hiding, and they just blurt out, and who can stand? Now, I don't want you to conclude that John is simply repeating this because these are questions posed in Nahum and in Malachi. What's most fascinating about the book of Revelation is that that question, who can stand, is not a rhetorical question. It's a question that Revelation chapter 7 is written to answer. The who can stand question that is posed by terrified sinners who see the presence of God and the Lamb as a threat pose the question, who can stand, thinking Clearly, no one can. Revelation 7 paints a very different picture, identifying quite plainly and quite simply those who can stand. 
And we will take the time next week to specifically look at that, but allow me just to read verse 9 of Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You see, Revelation is not just a description of the things that are going to happen for you and I to tuck away somewhere in our imaginations. They are descriptions and realities portraying exactly who it is who's going to see the great and awesome day of the Lord as a joyous thing and who in our world is going to see the great and awesome day of the Lord as a terrifying thing. But I want you to understand something. The presence of the Lord doesn't change here. Those who interpret what he's coming to do based upon who they are and how they see him, that is what makes the difference between whether or not he is appreciated, embraced, and loved, or if he is hated, despised, and run from. That's the image that's here. And even as Revelation 6 comes to an end, it almost looks like the world has come to an end. Everything that has been described, the shaking of the heavens, the shaking of the earth, you know, the, the sky being rolled up like a scroll, things being shaken violently, stars falling to the earth, it seems like everything is over. But this is just getting things started. And we're going to see as we go through Revelation that reading this book chronologically is not this, the, the best idea. Because themes like the presence of the Lord and how he comes to the earth with rumblings and peals of thunder, these themes will be repeated gradually and you will see them intensify as the book goes forward. That's why recognizing questions, recognizing statements, seeing themes that are interwoven like who can stand puts a little time out in the narrative, which is what Revelation 7 will do, to show us behind the scenes how it is that the Lord is both preserving his people and coming with wrath toward those who do not see him. So back to Isaiah 54 one more time. We're told that the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. That sounds an awful lot like what's happening here. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The mountains and the hills may be removed. The islands may not have a place to call home. But the Lord's covenant of peace shall not be removed. That's something that according to Hebrews 12 is part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Lord's covenant of peace with and for his people is something that can never be removed. Why? Because the Lord has compassion on you. That is who the Lord is. But those who do not see him that way, those who are crooked in their own ways, to him, the Lord seems tortuous. And so the way it is that we view him will have profound effect upon who we actually think he is. And so this wraps up Revelation chapter 6. 
Next week, as I shared with you, we'll look at Revelation 7. It is a beautiful picture, and we'll pick up again on the trajectory being offered by the first four seals from the opening few verses of Revelation 6 and show a very different trajectory taking place through those in whom the Lord has his his covenant of peace and how that looks vastly different from those individuals and what the one seated on the throne and the lamb offered to them as opposed to the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, how they choose to see the Lord when his presence comes to the earth. So I am so thankful that you're continuing to listen in each week to this podcast. If you would take a moment this week, it would be a tremendous blessing and encouragement to me and to others if you would leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these podcasts on. This will help other listeners to find the podcast and hopefully we can continue the conversations together and to spread the word. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast or any number of things that I've shared or maybe things that I've left out that you wish I would say, please feel free to email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram. I try to post a little post for for the release of each new each new episode, and you can find me there at the Unbinding the Bible podcast. Again, I'm glad that you are continuing to track with me as we move into chapter seven. Get ready again for just more beauty and glory as we investigate who the Lord is and what He wants to do for the benefit of the world. Until then, have a great week.